To binge all episodes of The Killing Month, August 1978, join Wondery Plus and enjoy ad-free listening to over 40,000 episodes, early access to your favorite podcasts, and more. Find Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This podcast contains graphic descriptions of violence, references to sexual assault, and contains adult language. Listener discretion is advised. When I was 13 years old, my dad, Bill Lamb, prosecutor for the cases against the Johnston gang, called my school and told the principal I'd be out for a while. I really wanted you to see what I did. So I thought that it would be a good idea to take you up for closing arguments and popped you on change of venue airlines along with Jeff Gordon or um, babysitter, bodyguard, etc. And up you came. Remember, Change of Venue Airlines was the tongue-in-cheek name for the small plane that ferried witnesses back and forth from Chester County to Cambria County. Detective Jeff Gordon went everywhere with me during my stay, to the arcade, to the indoor pool. I could tell he was not very excited about his assignment, following a teenager around the Holiday Inn. But security was tight during the trial of Norman and David Johnston in 1980. And, well, the prosecutor's family was a target. So there I was in the courtroom on the first day of closing arguments. The defense attorneys laid out their case first. They said Leslie Dale and Ricky Mitchell were admitted killers and unreliable criminals who were more likely responsible for these murders than the Johnstons. Larry Goldberg, Norman's attorney, said if the brothers wanted to get rid of people, it would have been Leslie and Ricky. Yet, they are alive and well. Larry added, quote, If the Commonwealth had a strong case, it would have fingerprints, tire tracks, and blood samples, end quote but there was no physical evidence connecting the brothers to the crimes. John LaChelle, David's attorney, said unlike state witnesses, defense witnesses had no deals and had nothing to gain by testifying. It was true that Leslie and Ricky had deals, but after telling investigators one too many falsehoods on the way to the truth, their original deals were revoked and Leslie was now facing up to 40 years, and Ricky was looking at life in prison. LaChelle pointed out that the murders stopped once the snitches were in jail. He said, quote, David and Norman are here because they are the brothers of Bruce Johnston Sr. That's what it comes down to, and that, ladies and gentlemen, is guilt by association. Then it was my dad's turn. The night before his closing argument, he had been told by a New York Times reporter named Ben A. Franklin. Yes, you heard that right. A journalist named Ben Franklin covering a story in Pennsylvania. Bill had been told by Ben that he was going to lose the case. I said, well, why would you say that? He said, well, you know, it's all circumstantial evidence and you don't have any confessions from any of the three guys and and you're going to lose. I said, well, you know, why would you tell me this right now? He said, well, I just think you should know it before you go into your summation. After Ben Franklin left, I vividly remember my father venting to my mother about how unprofessional it was for a journalist to have shared his opinion. And my dad didn't say this diplomatically. It might have been the first time I ever heard him curse. That son of a gun. That's not the term I used. I'm saying to myself, here, I'm, I'm 12 hours away from arguing to a jury the most important case in my life. And then he comes in and tells me that. Why would he do that? So I was furious. I was perplexed. Why did he feel this way? If he felt that way, would a juror feel that way? I'm Amanda Lamb. 
From WREL Studios, this is The Killing Month, August 1978. The story of a family crime empire that came crumbling down when the bodies started piling up. On the day my dad's closing argument was scheduled to take place, I remember being on the second floor of the courthouse in a room with the investigators and prosecutors, drawing handmade graphs for a science class and finding out that my dad's closing argument would be delayed until the next day due to a snowstorm. I was so mad because I had a test the next day that I wanted to get back for. That's where my head was at the time. Even though I was a mature kid, I couldn't really grasp how important this case was to so many people. When it finally came time for my father's closing argument, it lasted four hours. That's a long time for a 13-year-old to sit still in a courtroom and listen. Frankly, for anyone to sit still in a courtroom and listen. But he was adept at getting everyone's attention. It was equal parts law and theater. His main point was that Leslie and Ricky, well, they were not criminal masterminds capable of making all this happen. My father told the jury that the snitches were guilty too, but not as guilty as the Johnston brothers. My father said, quote, these are the worst kinds of crimes imaginable. Not only is it murder, but murder for a purpose, murder to stop people from taking the witness stand and telling the truth. Dad bellowed as he addressed the jury directly. He went on to say, quote, that strikes at the very heart of our criminal justice system. And then he returned to a familiar theme, quote, we're not dealing with a regular family. This is not a family of love. This is a family of crime. Did it help you to come up with that by comparing it to your own life? By thinking about, you know, how much you loved your own kids and your family? Sure. Sure. Yeah. I think not just my own family, but the families of all the... I got to know the police officers very well. I knew their kids. So you get to know the families. You get to know the wives, all of that kind of stuff. And you see the bonding that goes on. And you compare that, that to the Johnston gang. I remember the dramatic moment in his closing argument when dad recited the names of the murder victims. 15-year-old Robin Miller, 17-year-old Dwayne Lincoln, 18-year-old James Johnston, 19-year-old Wayne Sampson, and 24-year-old James Sampson. All I could think about was how young they were, how they were not much older than me, and now their lives were over. They were gone. But the pinnacle moment that I will never forget in my dad's final statement, he turned from the jury and pointed at the table where Norman and David sat and said directly to them in a booming voice, quote, let the word go forth to the world today from this courtroom that these defendants are guilty of murder in the first degree. He looked and sounded like he might explode, but then as suddenly as he had pounced, he dropped his finger, calmly turned to the jury and thanked them for their attention. He then quietly returned to his seat at the prosecution table. Jury deliberations began on March 15, 1980, at 10.45 in the morning. And there was understandably a lot of tension in the Cambria County Courthouse. An alarm went off in the courtroom two hours after the jurors returned to a side room to deliberate. Officers ran into the courtroom with guns drawn, but it turned out to be a false alarm. And after a six-week trial, the jurors were clearly taking their time to methodically go over everything they had heard. 
Norman's defense attorney, Larry Goldberg, recalled waiting for the jury to return its verdict. We knew that we had a couple people on our side because when the jurors were brought to the courthouse, everyone got out of the bus except two people in the back. And they were two jurors who had separated themselves from the other jurors. And the jury, when they were taken out to a meal, had kind of discussed what the, what the vote was. And the tip staff had told one of his reporter friends from out in that area, and they reported it on the radio. Well, they're getting close to verdict. It's 10 to 2. Former Daily Local News reporter Bruce Mowdy says the jurors wanted to know where the leak was. They wanted to know who released this information to the media. Deputies spent a lot of time going through the jury room, trying to see if there was a bug recording what the jurors were saying. No recording device was found, and the waiting continued. Getting a little bit worried when we were in the third day of deliberations in Cambria County, and the jury still hadn't come back with a verdict. You know, the longer a time the jury takes, the more you start to wonder. That's how then-Philadelphia Inquirer reporter Julia Cass remembers waiting for the verdict. Because this was way before cell phones, everyone had to stay close to the courtroom if they wanted to be there when the verdict came down. So most of the audience, family members, attorneys, they all sat in the courtroom and talked quietly, played cards, or read while they waited. For much of the time, Norman and David were being held by officers in the law library of the courthouse. Norman told reporters at the time, quote, this is really getting on my nerves. I remember sitting around, reliving a lot of it. Should we have done this? Should we have done that? You know, that kind of thing. Because you think about the effort that you've put into this, you poured your heart and soul into into doing all of this, and 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 you say, what the hell's going on? You know. Of course, my having covered it and talked to everybody, I you know I knew they did it, but I thought, well, maybe they didn't make their case well enough. Maybe I don't know. I mean, it was just I was, but I remember being worried that they were going to come back and find them not guilty in some fashion. On March 18, 1980, after three days of jury deliberations, all the players were called back into the courtroom. And then the judge says, members of the jury, have you reached a verdict? This was a big case. It was a lot of resources and a lot of time and, and very you know, made headlines across the country. I remember Time Magazine did something. Esquire sent a reporter to do it. The New York Times covered the trial. And in Bruce Mowdy's Daily Local News, the headline after the verdict read, Johnston Brothers guilty of first-degree murder in four deaths. David and Norman Johnston were convicted of killing Robin Miller and the three members of the Kitty Gang. They were found not guilty of the murder of James Sampson. Sarah Martin helped raise her grandnephew, Jimmy Johnston, one of the members of the Kitty Gang. After the verdict, she said, quote, Now I just want to see the same thing happen to Bruce Sr. I want to see the same thing happen to Bruce Sr. because he is the one who shot Jimmy. And I hope when they give him the guilty verdict, I can be there and watch his face. She went on to say, quote, You know, I caught myself just lately telling my husband, don't turn the light off. Jimmy will be home soon. His shoes are still sitting in the hall on a milk stool. I dust them off and polish them. I kiss them and set them back there every day. Maybe it's silly, but it's something I have left of him. 
Coming up, Bruce Sr. speaks from jail. And months after his brothers are convicted, Bruce Sr. stands trial. Your heart. It's the only one you have. Fortunately, you also have a choice. Expert cardiologists, talented surgeons, highly skilled specialists, all of whom chose WakeMed. Why? The main reason is the same reason patients choose WakeMed. Everything you need for the best possible care is right here. Learn more at WakeMed.org. WakeMed Heart and Vascular Physicians. Your heart, your choice. In between the two trials, my grandmother, Sarah Lamb, Sally to her friends, and Lady to her grandchildren, got sick and was hospitalized. For my dad, who was devoted to his mother, this was a devastating blow. I remember coming home one night and finding him downstairs in our family room on his knees, praying. He wasn't an overtly religious man, so I knew this meant things were bad, very bad. When Lady died in May of 1980 on the operating table as the result of an aneurysm, it was a huge blow to all of us, but especially to her only son, my dad, who gave her eulogy through tears in the small church that our family had belonged to for generations. Still, he had to put his grief aside and prepare for the next trial. Bruce Sr.'s trial was set for October 1, 1980. They would repeat the basic framework of this case from David and Norman's trial, but they had also learned important lessons from the first trial. They worked on streamlining the testimony to keep in only what they thought resonated with jurors and got rid of what did not. The team met weekly in the months leading up to the trial, and then more often in the weeks preceding it. While prosecutors were getting ready for Bruce Sr.'s trial, Ricky Mitchell sat in jail, in the same jail, in the same cell block as Bruce Sr. Ricky told reporter Bruce Mowdy in a 1980 interview that he thought his life was in danger, and he did everything he could to avoid Bruce Sr. when their paths inevitably crossed. Just trying to be cool, you know? Sure, sure. Conservatives. And I'd face the wall so he wouldn't see who I was, you know? Sure. In case you didn't catch that, Ricky said, just trying to be cool, you know, and that he'd face the wall so Sr. couldn't see who he was. But Bruce Sr. did see Ricky, and soon after that first sighting, Ricky got beaten up in prison. I tried to get up again, I get hit again. Ricky explained how he kept trying to get up and kept getting pummeled back to the ground. Eventually, he lost consciousness and ended up in the hospital. It was never proven, but Ricky always believed Bruce Sr. was behind the attack. And Bruce Sr., the man himself, also did a jailhouse interview with Bruce Mowdy in December 1979. And I tried for that interview for months and months, as did every other newspaper reporter. I sat in a jail cell with uh, Bruce, and I had a tape recorder in my notes. People asked me if I was afraid of him. I said, no, you know, I, that was a great story. Plus, you know, there was no reason for him to harm me there. I was there to talk to him and get his side of the story. So Bruce Mowdy sat in that prison cell and interviewed Senior for two hours. And he asked Bruce Senior if the cops' alleged vendetta against him started with the murder of the two Kennett Square police officers. All these charges, everything, does it all go back to the Ansel Hampton? Yeah. Please still believe that you were involved. Oh, yeah. That's what they say anyway. That's what they say. That's what you believe is why all this stuff is... I believe that's the most of it, right? Bruce Johnston Sr. says he was beaten up by corrections officers in jail. He explained in the interview how he suffered broken ribs, 
was throwing up blood and still had headaches and memory loss as a result. He said the officers started a fire in his cell, and he got blamed for it. At the time of the interview, he was in solitary confinement 22 hours a day. He said jail officials also accused him of trying to plan an escape, which he claimed wasn't true. He thought it all went back to the Ansel Ham case, that they'd targeted him as a cop killer, which he said was false. And while Bruce Mowdy humored Bruce Sr. in the interview, it's clear that he didn't come to the jail to talk about the conditions there. He wanted to talk about the murder cases. And they finally did, starting with Bruce Sr.'s connection to snitch Leslie Dale. I met him in here in 1976. And uh, that was about it. I mean, as far as me being friends with him or anything like that, I wasn't really friends with him because he always drank too much, and I didn't really like Leslie Dale. Senior dismissed each of the snitches, saying he didn't really know them, they weren't part of his inner circle. He said they committed the crimes and pinned it on him just to get deals. He claimed that Ricky Mitchell was strange and that James Disco Griffin didn't like him because he had had an affair with one of James's past girlfriends a long time ago. And when it came to his own son, Bruce Jr., Bruce Sr. said he and Jr. got along good in jail. Have you had any contact with Bruce Jr.? The last time I seen him was in here back uh, last summer when he was in here, when he Marshall's boy in here. And I had talked to him three or four times across the hall. Seemed very bitter at your preliminary hearing. Is he still bitter? No, he was getting along okay. Yeah, we got along good in here. The only thing he was going by, he didn't really know. I think he knows that I had nothing to do with that because uh, in here he was talking to me and stuff. That their uh, business with him, he knows that I had nothing to do with that. In case you couldn't hear that, Bruce Sr. said, quote, he knows I had nothing to do with that. Clearly, he's referring to the ambush where Robin Miller was killed and Bruce Jr. was seriously wounded. More than 40 years later, Bruce Mowdy still remembers the impression that Bruce Sr. made on him during that interview. He was super polite to me, and he was older than I am, and he always called me Mr. Mowdy. I thought he was articulate. He wasn't, didn't come off as a know-it-all at least in front of me, but I, I think he had dis- different personas with different people. You know, he could be a tough guy when he wanted to, but with me, he, you know, he, he was just kind of a normal person talking with him. Which is kind of crazy when you think about at that time. I mean, he was on trial for murdering six people. There could be more. We don't know. And Some people think uh, he, he did a lot more. I'm convinced he did at least 10. You heard that right. Bruce Mowdy believes to this day that Bruce Sr. murdered 10 people, not just the six he was accused of killing in this case. He admitted, I'm a thief, but not a murderer. People say said I committed these crimes, but they were only saying it because of my reputation. Did you believe him? I, I, I'm convinced he committed the murders. He was involved. There's just too much evidence. That jailhouse interview Bruce Mowdy did with Bruce Sr. is the only time I ever heard Sr.'s voice. It's strange. After spending months doing research on someone and trying to get a sense of who that person was, this person who was known to be so cruel and heartless, and then to actually hear his voice complaining about his treatment— dismissing his connections to people who were deeply embedded with the gang and just sounding so small. It wasn't what I expected. And then I got another view into Senior. I read a letter he wrote to his wife, Carol, dated November 15, 1979, just a month before that jailhouse interview. 
Bruce Mowdy provided me with the letter and said it was part of the court record. The letter starts, quote, Hi, love. What's up with you? As for me, not too much to say, except to say I love you and miss you more than ever. In the letter, Senior goes on to suggest that Carol should buy a new model T-Bird with a specific kind of motor. He wants her to stick with a Ford because they're easy to get parts for. He tells her not to buy the car from the lot, but to order one and to get three prices from different people. That way, she'll get the best price. He says, quote, do just as I say. He says this three times. He wraps up the letter by saying, quote, love, no other woman is anything like you. And I mean that you're a wonderful person. Yours truly, love forever, Bruce. He adds at the top of the second page a message to their daughter. Quote, P.S. Kiss Sharon for me. Tell her I love her. Bruce Sr.'s trial would be simpler than Norman and David's in some ways. First, it would take place in the same county where the murders happened, Chester County. This was because a new state law passed. Instead of having a change of venue in a case that required the whole trial to move, they could simply import a jury from another county. This would achieve the same goal, to find jurors who knew nothing or very little about the case and could therefore remain unbiased. The big difference in this trial was that Bruce Sr. was charged not only with Robin Miller's murder, the murders of the Kitty Gang and James Sampson, but also with the 1977 murder of Gary Crouch. But no trial is without some complications. Bruce's first court-appointed attorney dropped out of the case after Bruce Sr. wrote him a letter saying he didn't trust him. His second court-appointed attorney dropped out in January 1980. He said representing Bruce was likely to cause him tension with his partners in his law firm because it would require so much of his time. Local attorney Anthony List Sr. ultimately took the case. List passed away in 2011. But we spoke with his son, Anthony List Jr., who remembers how it all happened. I think we were at the Delaware County Bar Association building. Like, we might have been playing racquetball or something. And I think that's when he was talking to somebody that they were having something about trying to get this guy a lawyer kind of thing because there was some difficulty. And I think my dad threw his name in the hat right there while we were changing our socks type of thing. Liz Sr. was quoted in the Daily Local News as saying, quote, I find it a professional challenge. He went on to say, quote, I feel that it's part of my professional duties to accept the case. I've read a lot about it. It's an interesting case. And Anthony Jr. says from what he witnessed, his father and Bruce Sr. had a good working relationship, considering the circumstances. I honestly think it kind of liked each other. I'm not saying my dad would have him over for dinner kind of thing, but I think there's I know it's kind of hard when you talk about somebody like that. I mean, I'm not a psychologist or whatever, but I think if another person's a human being, you're going to find some kind of common ground. And I think one of the things that Johnson liked about him is that they had him all shackled up. And he said something to the guards. Well, I was like, well, I'm not going to talk to him if you're going to keep him shackled up like that. Basically saying, like, treat him like he's kind of stuck up for his humanity, I want to say. Like, you know, I'm talking to my client here. I don't want him you know, shackled head to toe while I'm talking to him. And apparently that, that, that went a long way with Johnson. He's like, okay, somebody's finally treating me like I'm not some animal. Right away, Anthony Sr. realized he had his hands full with this case. Not only did he have years of information to catch up on in the case file, but he was worried that the judge could not be impartial after presiding over David and Norman's trial. So... Anthony Sr. argued to the Pennsylvania Supreme Court that Judge Leonard Sugarman should be removed from the case because he might feel compelled to make the same rulings that he made in David and Norman's trial, even though the evidence and the defendants were not the same. List also said that Sugarman might feel undue pressure to help the state get a conviction 
because the people in the county clearly wanted to see Bruce Sr. locked away for good. He called the phenomenon the Johnston Syndrome and went on to say that there was, quote, a tremendous amount of hate and hostility, end quote, that existed in Chester County at the time. Something he noted that was not lost on a judge like Sugarman, who was seeking re-election. The Supreme Court justices pushed back on this notion, saying it was not unusual for the same judge to preside over multiple trials in the same case. Sugarman would stay. So, after a few delays, in October 1980, the trial of Bruce Johnston Sr. finally got underway. That's after the break. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. I was not the only kid who knew a lot about the Johnston Gang. Anthony List Sr., the defense lawyer for Bruce Johnston Sr., didn't hide what he was working on from his son, Anthony Jr. I was interested, but he probably told me stuff that I a 10-year-old didn't need to know, but he told me details about some of the murders. So, like, they were just freaking ruthless, apparently. Anthony List Jr. remembers sitting directly behind the defense table on the other side of the courtroom from where I sat. I think there was a bench in front of me. I just remember they were very close. Ten-year-old Anthony had a front-row seat to the action at Bruce's trial and to the performance put on by the defendant. Bruce would turn around and, like, make little comments to me, trying to be funny kind of thing. Little Anthony, you get this? I don't know what they're talking about. This is all a bunch of crap. You know, he was trying to put on a little sideshow, I think, for everybody that was watching, that he was this innocent guy and trying to maybe, maybe he was being nice to the little kids sitting behind him. I don't know. Bruce Sr. didn't wear shackles and chains in front of the jury. But as soon as he left the courtroom, deputies shackled him again. And Anthony remembers the two of them interacting. They had him shackled up pretty good, too. He wasn't a big dude, but they had like an iron bar down the back of his leg so he couldn't run on top of all the other shackles. But he was cuffed in the front, and he's walking out, and he goes to me like, your dad gives you any trouble here, you just give me a call, right? And he's like, shh, shh, shh. And I'm like, <laughs> The idea that Bruce would say something like this, even in jest to a child, and give the signal to offing someone, fingers in the shape of a gun, when he was charged with killing six people, it was a memorable moment. Anthony Jr. says his dad knew it was a joke and laughed in response to Bruce's antics. Anthony List Sr. had a laid-back demeanor in the courtroom. It made for a sharp contrast to the more stoic prosecutor, Bill Lamb. Tony was a good lawyer, good defense lawyer, pushed all the right buttons. I think you said uh, at one point you were talking about him and you said he had a an almost relaxed presentation and a way of relating to the jury that was disarming for you. Correct. That was what you were up against. At the outset of his trial, Bruce said he was being persecuted, not prosecuted, because the prosecutors and the investigators believed he had something to do with the killings of two Kennett Square police officers in 1972, but could never prove it. Bruce's defense team tried to paint him as a benevolent figure that couldn't possibly have committed these heinous crimes. Marie Sampson, mother to murder victims Wayne and James, testified that Bruce Sr. had given her family money, paid her phone bill, and kept her furniture from being repossessed. She said she didn't know that he was committing burglaries with her sons. She wrote to him in jail within months of leading up to the trial, asking for help. And Bruce's sister, Mary Payne, 
brought her $250 that she used for food and clothing. As in the first trial, this defense team also tried to show that snitches Leslie Dale and Ricky Mitchell weren't credible witnesses and that they had just as much motive to kill the victims, if not more, than Bruce Sr. did. Bruce's attorney revealed in court that there was evidence that Leslie had raped and beaten James and Wayne Sampson's sister, Glenda, and that Leslie might have feared retaliation from the Sampson brothers for his actions and subsequently killed them. Sampson's mother did confirm that her daughter told her Leslie had raped her. Glenda could not testify to this fact because she was dead. An investigation ruled that she had died by suicide, but there were lingering questions surrounding her death. The jury never heard any of this because Judge Sugarman ruled that it was inadmissible. Ricky Mitchell's credibility was also called into question as a witness by the defense, and to make matters more complicated, he had threatened to switch sides, to testify for Bruce Sr. if the prosecution team didn't get him better medical care behind bars. Once again, snitch James Disco Griffin, the self-admitted burglar who said he didn't kill anyone, was a star witness for the prosecution. He testified that he was present for multiple conversations between the brothers as they argued about the murders and their troubles with police. For example, he said he heard them talking about the fact that Norman tried to break into the Chester County Medical Center in order to get at Bruce Jr. while he was recovering from the ambush. He said he heard David tell Bruce Sr., quote, if you and Samson hadn't raped her, none of this would have happened. And according to James, David went on to say, quote, this isn't the 30s anymore. You can't go around shooting federal witnesses and kids. On cross-examination, the defense tried to paint James as vindictive. And James admitted he did hold a grudge against Bruce Sr. for something that had happened with a girlfriend a decade earlier. And then it was time for the witness who started it all. With little Bruce, the security around him was like the Secret Service around the president. I mean, it was very, very tight. I mean, we had good security getting people into the courtroom. Uh, So we weren't worried about somebody in the courtroom doing something, but we were worried about the interaction between father and son and whether there would be intimidation, so to speak, by the father of the son where he would recant his testimony or not testify at all. My dad says they had specific officers assigned to crucial witnesses like Bruce Jr. And they tried to keep that officer assigned to that witness throughout the trial so that trust could develop between them. So that Bruce Jr. wasn't walking into the courtroom with some stranger, but with someone with whom he had some level of comfort. When Bruce Jr. took the stand, he took it as the son of the ringleader the son of the man on trial for killing six people, the son of a father who was accused of trying to kill him. From the beginning, the investigators had been so careful with Bruce Jr. Even with his initial willingness to talk, there was still this delicate balance of getting him to trust the investigators enough to give them everything they needed. One of the hard parts when you deal with somebody like that and you get them to cooperate and you try to get them to turn from their wicked ways, as I would say, but, you know, turn and go a different direction is they don't trust you either because they've never trusted anybody in their whole life. Tom Cloud and the other investigators went into the initial interviews with Bruce Jr. back in August 1978 with some skepticism. They knew they would need to get more credible witnesses to bolster the foundation of what he told them, because what he was telling them was largely motivated by the letter he received in jail from Robin 
saying that she had been raped by Bruce Sr. and James Sampson. And they needed to make sure he was telling the truth, not just getting revenge. So Bruce wants to put his father in jail. You know, he wants him to punish him at this point in time. You know, picture the scenario. What's his objective? you got to be careful that he doesn't try to tell you things to jam up his father, you know, because he's got this grudge. That grudge could only have grown after Robin's murder and having a hail of bullets shot into his body. So Junior's word also needed to be backed up, as with other snitches, with corroborating evidence. When Bruce Jr. testified at his father's trial, he said basically the same things he had said at David and Norman's trial. He was involved in stealing tractors with his dad. He was mad at his dad after he got Robin's letter. That's why he turned on him. And no, he didn't see the people who shot him. Junior would later tell Julia Cass that when he was in the witness box testifying against his father, he looked at his dad and felt sorry for him. When Bruce Sr. took the stand, he was the man of the hour, the person everyone wanted to hear from. The guy the prosecution said was the mastermind of all of it. And most importantly, the person charged in six murders. According to Julia Cass's reporting, on the stand, Bruce Sr. appeared calm and poised in a three-piece suit and denied taking part in any of the murders, saying, no, I did not, to each question posed by his attorney regarding his participation in the killings. He said he loved his son. Remember, Bruce Sr. was not living with Junior's mother. Junior didn't grow up in the same house with his father. Bruce Sr. said he really only met Junior in 1975 when he showed up at his house, quote, all raggedy looking with no place to stay. Bruce Sr. gave him a car, a place to live, and a job. As far as the reason for the falling out between father and son, Bruce Sr. denied raping Robin Miller, saying it, quote, never happened. He blamed his son's cooperation with authorities on his desperation to get out of jail. He said, quote, he was in love with that young woman and he wanted out of jail. I probably would have done the same thing. During several hours of what Julia Cass called, quote, intense cross-examination by the prosecutor, William Lamb, Bruce often snapped at him and made cutting remarks about Lamb's team and the investigators, causing a wave of laughter to ripple through the courtroom audience. But my dad had a plan. When you get a witness on the witness stand, whether it's a defendant or simply a witness, and that witness loses his cool, you got him. You want to get him angry. If you will, you want him to go off script. And that's what happened with Bruce. this heated exchange, Bruce Sr. argued with Lamb saying, quote, give me a deal and see what I say. He also called Detective Charlie Zagorski a, quote, dummy. Then on redirect, Bruce apologized, saying, quote, I guess I shot my mouth off when I shouldn't have. I was pretty mad at the questions they were asking me. I know Zagorski still hates me and the feeling is mutual. When it came time for closing arguments, my father again defended the prosecution team's use of accomplices as witnesses. He said, quote, midnight assassins leave no witnesses. Basically, what he's saying here is you're left with criminals as witnesses. He went on to say, quote, the Commonwealth corroborated points made by major witnesses, big points, little points, and obscure points, points witnesses couldn't make up. 
He then said, if you believe a mass conspiracy took place, you must believe every law enforcement agency involved in this case, including local police, state police, FBI, the DA, and the U.S. attorney, were involved. I vividly remember being in the courtroom during my father's closing argument in Chester County when he talked about how long it took Robin to die after she was shot. He held up a photo of her and then took out a stopwatch and made everyone sit quietly while the time ticked down. The other thing I remember from the end of Bruce's trial was that as far as the eye could see in the courtroom, there were officers in blue, and I was sitting right in the middle of them. My dad knew most of them, and he says they were very invested in the outcome of this case. The whole community was. And uh, to have something like this happen in a small town uh, just uh, took away the, uh, the, uh, the virginity of Chester County, that it could that it could happen here meant it could happen anywhere. After the closing arguments were complete, the jury retired to the deliberation room. Unlike the trial of David and Norman Johnston, prosecutors did not have to wait long for the jury in Bruce Sr.'s case to return their verdict. Here's how Assistant District Attorney Dolores Troiani remembers waiting for the jury. They had been out for maybe three hours. And, you know, they, they, when you have that many murders, you think, oh, wow, you know, are they really going to put somebody in jail and only spend three hours? But that's exactly what happened. I actually have the jury verdict slips from both the trials where they both guilty, guilty, guilty. You can tell from Dolores's voice more than 40 years later that there was, of course, celebration on the part of the prosecution. But the verdict was met with mixed emotions by some people connected to the case. Bruce Jr. told reporter Julia Cass after the verdict that he had nightmares about his father and James Sampson, the men Robin accused of raping her, coming back to kill him. Clearly, the case affected Bruce Jr. profoundly and would take a toll on his life forever. For Anthony Jr., the trial had actually been transformative for his family. Anthony says his father, Bruce's attorney, had struggled with alcohol for much of Anthony's childhood. But things changed once the trial started. Man, that was one of the best times at that era because my dad didn't drink that whole trial. That was the most peaceful, structured time of my childhood was probably during that trial because he did not drink. Now, when Johnson was convicted, I'll never forget, he looked so shit-faced. Took it really hard, I guess. And I wanted to know from Anthony, did he get the feeling that his dad thought that Bruce was innocent? I do remember him saying that, that, that he thought maybe that these guys had all set him up, that he was definitely a pretty tough thief and that kind of stuff, and a robber and a thief, but he wasn't a murderer. But later on, he was like, you know, the guys, you know, clearly was guilty as hell of a lot of that stuff. It's worth pointing out that Bruce Sr. was convicted of killing James Sampson, even though his body was never found. This is the one murder that David and Norman were found not guilty of committing. I think he was convicted on that because he was such a toad that they would have convicted him of stealing his lunch in the courthouse if they'd given the opportunity. You know, I mean, he was just... He was the ringleader. He was the orchestrator of all of this. He was the puppeteer pulling the strings. And once we established that, 
I don't think there was any doubt that they would convict him of everything. Bruce Sr. was found guilty on all six counts of murder on November 15, 1980. It was the anniversary of the murder of the two police officers in Kennett Square. After the verdict, my father made a statement in the basement of the courthouse to the team and the media saying, quote, this is poetic justice. It is eight years after officers Posey and Davis were assassinated in Kennett Square. There is no doubt in my mind that Ansel Ham had help, and it came from one of these three defendants we convicted this year. He went on to say, quote, It's been a long time. The wheels of the justice system grind slowly, but they do grind. One of the things I keep coming back to about these murders is how sad and senseless they were. I mean, they were street smart people, cunning. I used to say most criminals are stupid uh, because they make a mistake somewhere along the line. These guys avoided making mistakes for a long time. Their mistakes was killing people. Norman and David Johnston received four consecutive life sentences, one for each victim they were convicted of killing. Bruce Sr. received six consecutive life sentences for his crimes. Everyone I spoke to agrees. If they hadn't killed these kids, sure, the Johnstons would have gone to prison for a while for theft. But not the rest of their lives, and they wouldn't have died in prison. Well, not all of them die in prison. In our final episode, one of the brothers escapes. And in true Johnston fashion, you won't believe how he does it. Also, the legacy of the Johnston gang. The murders, the all-consuming investigation and trials, and the fear inflicted by the Johnstons all left indelible marks on Chester County, scars that are still there, 45 years after the month that changed everything. I'm Amanda Lamb, and this is The Killing Month, August 1978. And in local news, the Designery of North Raleigh is holding a grand opening event at noon on May 16th. Please stop by and join the party. I'm Dana Merrill, the owner of the Designery. I am True Merrill. I am the project manager. The Designery grand opening, we're scheduled to open May 16th and do our grand opening party then. Uh, we're going to be catering some food. We're doing some giveaways. We have a VR headset, an Echo Show, some kitchen gadgets, and some fancy knives. 12 to 2 p.m. Please stop by our showroom, 3030 Wake Forest Road. That's The Designery at thedesignery.com. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity. And the American dream starts with purpose. Whether your pursuit involves a bachelor's, master's, or doctoral degree, GCU's learning environments are designed for supportive networking and collaboration. With over 330 academic programs, GCU provides a path to help you fulfill your dreams. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu.